This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks for downloading. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. Plant-based and cell-cultured proteins have received a ton of attention lately, and while they still represent less than 1% of the market, they're attracting interest from consumers, from entrepreneurs, investors, corporate agribusinesses, philanthropists, and other world leaders. I know I, for one, was surprised at how quickly Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods were able to gain fast food distribution for their products this past year. Now, depending on your point of view, you might range anywhere from excited to skeptical to outraged by these alternatives, Uh, but there is a strong case to be made that they are here to stay and are likely to grow in popularity. We're very, very fortunate to have on the show today one of the leading advocates for these alternatives in Bruce Friedrich. Bruce is the co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute, which focuses on using markets and food technology to move toward plant-based and cellular agriculture alternatives. But before we dive into this fascinating conversation with Bruce, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, Indigo Ag. Soil needs plants to stay healthy, just like plants need soil to survive. Nature thrives on forming connections. Farmers thrive on forming them too. With Indigo Marketplace, we're setting out to connect every farmer with every buyer, making it easier to find a market for the things that make your farm unique. Visit indigoag.com slash questions to find out more. Indigo, from questions, we grow. Thank you to Indigo for supporting independent ag media and the future of agriculture podcast. Bruce Friedrich is a TED Fellow, White Combinator alum, and popular speaker on food innovation. He has penned op-eds for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, Wired, and many other publications. He has appeared on the Today Show, NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News, TED Radio Hour, and a variety of programs on MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, and now the Future of Agriculture podcast. Uh, Bruce's TED Talk has been viewed more than 1.5 million times. Bruce starts our conversation off by sharing how he became passionate about this mission to improve the world through food innovation. Yeah, I read the book Diet for a Small Planet in 1987. I think it was already 15 years old at that point. And that got me thinking about the way that food is produced and the inherent inefficiency of growing lots and lots of corn and wheat and soy and feeding it to animals so that we can eat animals. So in Diet for a Small Planet, Francis Morlapay basically makes the case that we live on a small planet and that if we are going to feed nine calories to a chicken to get one calorie back out or 15 to 25 calories to a pig or a cow or a goat to get one calorie back out, that that is essentially the same as throwing away all of that corn or wheat or oats or whatever, because we could have used that land to grow those crops to feed human beings. And in fact, in a global economy, we are literally creating competition so that the famine in Ethiopia in the 80s, the famine in Somalia in the 90s, what's happening with the Brazilian rainforest today, 
Ethiopia and Somalia grew lots of crops, which were shipped to Europe to feed the chickens and pigs and other farm animals so that rich Europeans could eat meat, even as people domestically were starving. And there are obviously socio-political and socio-economic causes as well, but there is literally a relationship in a global marketplace that lends itself to a pretty vast iniquity that none of us would participate in directly, but that we do participate in if we're consuming animal products. The same sort of thing is happening with the Brazilian rainforest and subsistence farmers in Brazil today. That was kind of my uh, my original awakening. I ran a homeless shelter and the largest soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. in the early 90s, continuing to look at both domestic and global food issues went into animal protection and focusing on trying to convince consumers to eat less meat or no meat. And what I found was after literally decades of trying to educate people about the external costs of meat production was that in 2018, 2019, 2020, we're we're literally in the United States looking at the highest per capita meat consumption year by year and going up in recorded history For whatever reason, people just are not moved by the global health arguments or the environmental arguments or the animal welfare arguments. And so at GFI, instead of trying to sort of change consumers one by one, we do not advocate meat reduction. We do not advocate vegetarianism or veganism. We're focused on creating meat from plants and growing meat directly from cells. And those two methods of producing meat eliminate or lessen all of the external costs I've been talking about. And because they are a more efficient way of producing the meat that people love and want to eat, they should be cheaper as they scale up. So we'll simply outcompete conventional meat in the marketplace and, and replace it with something that tastes exactly the same or better and costs the same or less. That's basically GFI's focus. And what's changed between the 1980s when you read Diet for a Small Planet and and today that, that makes GFI more likely? I'm just wondering if it's a technological change, a behavioral change, an economic change, or maybe the, all of the above. But, uh, you know, what do you see that, that says, boy, I couldn't have started GFI in the 80s, but, but now the time is ripe? Well, I think we could have started GFI in the 80s. I think cultivated meat would have been nowhere near ready for prime time in the 80s. So cultivated meat is growing meat directly from cells, and it's basically taking the principles of tissue engineering for therapeutics, tissue engineering for medicine, and cross-applying them into food. So in the same way we would use tissue engineering to grow human cells, we can use tissue engineering to grow animal cells. And we can, instead of medical-grade media and medical-grade scaffolding, small bioreactors to to grow the cells, we can scale that up and use food-grade ingredients and much bigger bioreactors and This is an endeavor that I think could not have happened earlier just because tissue engineering for human therapeutics is not nearly as advanced. But on the plant-based side, it really was a failure of imagination more than anything else. And it's definitely the case that advances in meat science and plant biology and chemical engineering, like all of these things will help. But we certainly could have been doing this earlier, but nobody was thinking about it. People were thinking about vegetarian meat as being for vegetarians, or at the very least for people who wanted to eat less meat. And what happened was some entrepreneurs motivated by the climate impact of meat consumption started to think about 
making meat from plants to satisfy meat eaters rather than making you know, meat from plants to satisfy vegetarians. And the central brainstorm is pretty simple. It's that animal-based meat is made up of fats, proteins, minerals, and water. That is everything that exists in animal-based meat. All of that exists in the plant kingdom. And we can hire meat scientists and tissue engineers and plant biologists and others to figure out how we reverse engineer meat using plants. And a couple of companies that have done that very successfully are Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. And they are now in fast food joints all across the country. And even Burger King's meat research scientists and culinary experts tried the Impossible Whopper and said they find it indistinguishable from the animal-based Whopper. And we're, we're still fairly early days. And these technologies, you know, we've, we've basically just done burgers really, really well. But we are super optimistic about these companies and other companies, including now Tyson Foods has jumped in and has their own plant-based products. And Smithfield, Purdue Farms has a blend product using Better Meat Company that is very, very good. We're, we're very, very optimistic um, about using plants to do, I mean, meat eaters like meat because it's delicious and they like meat because it's reasonably priced. Meat eaters eat meat. They're not excited about the climate impact. They're not excited about water pollution. They're not excited about inefficiency. They're not excited about slaughterhouses. They like that it tastes fantastic and it's reasonably priced. We can give them that using plants. And because plants are so much more efficient, we can do it at a better price point as it scales up. So that's the focus. And it just, it really just hadn't occurred to people to think about biomimicking meat with plants. They thought about making something that sort of looks like meat and tastes good enough for, for vegetarians and meat reducers. And now we're getting things that um, biomimic meat and cost less. And, you know, that could have happened earlier. Yeah. And you'd, you'd mentioned, you know, obviously there's a ton of excitement around products like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, but yet the meat consumption is still higher than ever. You know, is it possible that that demand and consumption of both might continue to rise? And if so, you know, could that still be success for, for the Good Food Institute? Or is it only when it starts, you start to see the alternatives, you know, eat into the market share of the traditionally raised meat? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the question is, is traditionally raised meat continuing to go up to the same degree that it would go up absent the alternatives. I mean, if you look at, if you look at things like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, 90% of the people who are eating those products are people who are regularly consuming industrial animal meat as well. I, I think the reason you, you have seen so far plant-based meat and animal-based meat go up is that plant-based meat is such a tiny portion of the market at this point. But I think you will see very, very soon what happened with plant-based milk as opposed to animal-based milk, which is 20 years ago, plant-based milk was essentially nowhere. And now plant-based milk is, is 13% of the market and plant-based milk continues to go up even as animal-based milk sales continue to go down. So with plant-based meat, it's important to remember that the Impossible Burger just launched at the end of 2016 and probably had less than $250,000 in sales nationally in 2016. It was just in one restaurant in San Francisco and one restaurant in New York City. The Beyond Burger was just in a couple of Whole Foods stores. I think Boulder 
and DC in 2016. It didn't launch nationally until the summer of 2017. So these products are very early and the only products that really biomimic meat so far are burgers. So they've been around for less than three years and they are still less than one half of 1% of the market. So even as they're going up by double digits, you know, it's going to take them probably three or four more years to even get to 1%. That's when you start seeing displacement happen to a significant degree, I think. And, you know, right now they're sort of within the margin of error of not even existing, but we will see them do with regard to animal-based meat, what plant-based milk did with regard to, you know, cow-based milk, probably in the next five years. Okay. So, so you see that happening, and I know this is asking you to look into your crystal ball a little bit, but you see that happening at relatively a similar timeline to, to, to milk alternatives. Well, I mean, I think it might even be accelerated. Um, if, we, if we see the same level of early adoption, so the Beyond Burger in Carl's Jr. and TGI Fridays and other chains, the Impossible Burger at White Castle and Burger King and other chains. I think the adoption shift could be even even more quick than the plant-based milk adoption shift. But I mean, even if it uh, even if it just mirrored plant-based milk, we're still talking about going from a less than one billion dollar per year market right now up to in in the course of ten or fifteen years up to thirty to and then fifty. And I, I expect it'll just keep growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we've been talking, obviously, about plant-based here because those are readily on the market. How far are we from, you know, cell-cultured, lab-grown? I know, I know you refer to it as clean meat, and I also wanted you to help me understand these terms. But how far are we from, from the economics of that working at scale? Well, working at small scale, multiple companies are saying they're going to be on a limited number of restaurant menus in the next two to three years. And that's probably going to be at pretty high price points. One of the things that the Good Food Institute's policy department is focused on is freeing up resources for open source science on both the plant-based and the cultivated meat side with the recognition that that plant-based meat is not going to, it's probably not going to solve the entire problem. There are some people um, who are going to want to eat animal-based meat, no matter how good plant-based meat is. And so we need what we have done some consumer research and are now calling cultivated meat. And if you go to gfi.org slash cultivated meat, you can read our our latest consumer research and and thinking on that. We engaged a pro bono marketing firm called Matson, which is a top consumer products firm out of Minneapolis. But assuming we can free up resources, get big meat and food corporations investing in cultivated meat, get governments funding cultivated meat research in the way that they fund clean energy research, getting to to price points that are competitive with, for example, conventional beef could probably happen in, you know, five to 10 years, maybe even sooner with enough resources put into it. But I think it'll be, it'll initially come onto the market as a sort of niche and expensive product. And then as it scales up and as the CapEx costs are spent and factored into the, the price of the products over time, the prices will come down. It is, it is a significantly more efficient way of producing meat. So over time, uh, it will become cost competitive. But we have the entire infrastructure of the way that meat is produced now, like it exists. 
and it's just a maintenance question at the moment, whereas the, the infrastructure for cultivated meat doesn't exist at all. There are no, there are some total of zero 20,000 liter bioreactors producing cultivated meat anywhere in the world. So it's, it's going to take some time to get the price points down. And you said that's mainly because of infrastructure. Well, I mean, there are, there are science, there are R&D costs that need to be, that need to go, need to be spent. So we, we've got four critical technology elements across cultivated meat. You've got creating immortalized cells that regenerate in the way that they need to regenerate in order to create meat that multiply and grow appropriately. You've got media costs, and we need to figure out what the proper media are, and that's going to be different across the different sorts of cells that you're causing to grow. You've got scaffolding costs, and then you've got the cultivators, which basically look like beer. they, They basically look like beer fermenters. All of those need to be developed. So you've got both the initial research and development costs of creating this new industry. It's it's a little bit like talking about electric cars or talking about solar energy or wind energy or whatever. The the production you you need to do the initial research into how the these forms of energy production are commercialized. And then you also need to create the factories or wind turbines or uh, whatever it is that you're going to use, you know, the solar panels, et cetera, to create the forms of renewable energy. So you've got, you know, with continuing that metaphor, you've got the oil rigs and the entire infrastructure of, of pulling oil out of the ground and transporting it around the world for that sort of energy. So too with coal. And you know, if we didn't have that, uh, we had to, we had to do the basic science. We had to create the infrastructure for renewable energy. Uh, we need to do the same basic thing it's a it's a bigger challenge, obviously, on the cultivated meat side because none of that stuff exists, and there's a fair amount of science that needs to happen. On the plant-based side, there's probably a fair bit that still needs to happen for things like you know steaks and pork chops and and other things like that. And it's it's happening in a pretty big way for things like ground chicken and ground beef and that sort of thing. We're probably basically there. Interesting. And, and with the plant-based meat, you know, one thing that I was as I was doing research on this topic this fall. It was a little bit difficult to come by, you know, I, I, a lot of, a lot of the literature out there kind of says, well, here's how many, you know, here's how much goes into producing a cow, for example, versus here's how much goes mm-hmm. into producing peas, you know, field peas as an example. And right. I, I get that. Has there been any research done to, once you take all of these ingredients that go into, let's say, uh, you know, an impossible burger, you know, cumulatively, it's still is, you know, significantly less environmental impact. I mean, have there been studies to that degree? There have, yeah. There have been life cycle analyses. Morningstar Farms did a life cycle analysis for some of their burgers, I believe. And then both Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat have done life cycle analyses comparing the, all aspects of their production of plant-based meat to all aspects of the production of animal-based meat. And in response to, to that work, the United Nations Environment Program last year, so uh, 2018, gave Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat the champion, they jointly gave them their Champions of the Earth Award because the numbers look so good. Hmm. And then, you know, th- things that are exclu- exclusively cause of the way that, you know, of, of meat production. So things like bacterial contamination, that goes away completely. Antibiotic resistance um, attributable to the use of antibiotics in farm animals. That goes away completely. Things having to do with manure decomposition, destroying topsoil, or polluting water and creating dead zones. That goes away completely. But in terms of, of things like climate change, 
is, I think, the predominant focus of those LCAs, but also water use and land use are, uh, and then I think energy use, the, the plant-based products are significantly more efficient. So yeah, not, not as efficient as, as producing legumes, you know, peas and, and chickpeas and soy, and just eating the peas right. or chickpeas or soy, but still significantly, like, lots better across all of the environmental factors than going through the inefficiency of growing crops to feed it to animals, to eat animals. It, looking at, at at those ingredients, you know, mentioning earlier kind of the cumulative impact of all the ingredients, a lot of them are are some sort of sort of plant-based derivatives. And I know in, in the current, you know, the the current food system, a lot of the, the, the derivative products are packaged with products that end up getting getting fed to to animals. Is that is that the case in these plant-based foods? And if so, you know, how do we reconcile that with with uh, animal agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I think over time, that's certainly the case. I mean, the, the folks who are buying the pea protein are not buying the rest of the pea, and, and some of the rest of the pea could end up in animal agriculture, to, so too with soy and so on, or it could end up in a, a wide variety of other places. At, at GFI, we, we really are focused on not making value judgments about animal agriculture, but rather on using markets and innovation. And we're big fans of consumer choice. And uh, it is certainly the case that right now, some portion of these products is going to go into, you know, it'll go wherever they can sell it most efficiently. And that's going to be animal agriculture in some places. But as these products scale up, the price pressures on animal agriculture are going to be such that more and more people will switch. That that same argument would, would obviously have been true of a similar analysis of plant-based milk and animal-based milk. So plant-based milk, the soy, or the almonds, only a portion of the soy and the almonds is turned into plant-based milk, and some of the rest of it might end up being fed to dairy cows and be a part of the, the dairy industry at the same time. Nevertheless, what we've seen over 20 years is plant-based milk go from 0% to 13%, and plant-based milk continue to grow even as animal-based milk continues to fall. And I think that same sort of relationship will exist with plant-based meat and, and animal-based meat. In either one of your TEDx talks or maybe your, your TED talk, you'd said that you don't want to disrupt the, the meat industry. You want to transform it. Can, can you kind of flesh that out a little bit? Uh, kind of what, what does that mean or what's the difference between the two? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so the, the biggest goal, so we have three programmatic departments at the Good Food Institute. We have science and technology, we have policy, and we have corporate engagement. And the biggest and mo- most important focus of our corporate engagement department is to help big food and big meat corporations see plant-based meat as something that they want to be a part of. So companies like Tyson Foods and JBS, the two biggest meat companies in the world, have both gone into plant-based meat, which we think is a critically important and insanely valuable boon to the transformation that we want to create. So we're not trying to disrupt the meat industry. We're trying to help the meat industry transition. And nobody at JBS or Tyson is wed to the idea of live animals being turned into meat. They are wed to the idea of supplying high-quality protein to as many people as possible, as profitably as possible. So we want to bring them along, as well as the ingredient companies, as well as the media companies for cultivated meat, as well as sort of all of the existing corporate structures. We don't want to you know, cause any of them to fail. We want to help them 
transform to this new and more efficient and less harmful way of producing high quality meat for consumers. Looking kind of next three to five years, you know, obviously we've talked about sort of maybe patterning after the the plant-based milk alternatives or, you know, kind of looking at that. What else do you see that, that, that you know, the listeners here are, are interested in the future of agriculture? So as we look the next three to five years, or if you want to choose a longer time horizon, that's fine too. You know, what do you see as the big milestones? Well, I mean, one thing I'm excited about is being able to push back on the get big or get out ethos that has dominated agriculture over the last 30 to 50 years. I think you will see, especially on the plant-based meat side, I think you will see opportunities for crops like millet, which is barely planted in the U.S. at all, crops like lupin, which could be and is barely planted in the U.S. at all. I think you'll see more room for less monocropping, smaller scale farms, a wider variety of pulse crops. That's one thing that I I think you're going to see more and more and that we are very excited about. Beyond that, I mean, I think it's uh, my hunch is that it will be somewhat slow and steady wins the race. So as as happened with with plant-based milk, I think you're going to see more and more companies getting into the space, doing more and more technology. Our hope is that you'll see more land-grant universities doing work on pulse protein optimization with a view toward creating plant-based meat. I think you'll see more schools like MIT and some of the, the schools that are stronger on the sort of tissue engineering and chemical engineering hard sciences getting into food because this is just a, it's a colossal opportunity for people with this skill set that maybe haven't been thinking about food, to think about food and the positive benefits that they can create in the world by putting their talents into these alternative ways of producing meat for consumers. And I think you're going to see that happen more and more. And you're going to see big foundations that care about climate and global health. You're going to see governments. You're going to see the meat industry and the food industry itself all going more and more in this direction. Hmm. I, I tend to sort of look at the world with with kind of an abundance mindset, meaning like it can be it can be these things and, it, you know, not everything has to come at the expense of something else. You know, one thing I've been trying mm-hmm. to reconcile because while plant-based, plant-based meats as well as the potential for for cell cultured meats are exciting right now. So is regenerative agriculture. And a lot of the regenerative agriculture movement involves, you know, bringing livestock back onto soil to try to sequester carbon and and to contribute, Mm -hmm. you know, healthy soil ecosystems. Do you see the two, you know, as, as mutually exclusive or, you know, are they able to sort of both be successfully part of, of the future of agriculture? Yeah, I see regenerative agriculture as, as complementing, plant-based and cultivated meat nicely. And and the reason for that is that right now, I mean, the plant-based meat and the cultivated meat is focused on lowest common denominator meat. It's focused on replacing the meat that people buy because it's delicious and cheap. And because these ways of producing meat are more efficient, we can give consumers the same level of deliciousness at a lower price point. As you know, regeneratively farmed animals are probably less than one-tenth of one percent of meat production right now. And there are some, I think, very impressive 
endeavors focused on changing that. I think as more and more people look at how meat is made and start really sort of grappling with these various alternatives, my hunch is that that's going to be a win for regenerative agriculture in addition to being a win for plant-based and cultivated meat. And, And where we'll get is to a place where all of the meat that people buy because it is cheap and delicious will be either plant-based meat or cultivated meat. But I would think we'll probably have a a significantly higher proportion of meat being regeneratively farmed from regenerative farm animals in the future than we have now, because I think that's something that consumers are going to want. So, I mean, again, for us, it really is about using markets and food innovation. And my hunch is from talking to lots and lots of people that you've got the, the Michael Pollins and the Alice Waters and the slow food movement and the regenerative farming movement. And those folks are not going to go away. Those folks are going to create that demand. And probably you'll see that demand continue to go up. Right. Has there been any, and I, I'm not asking you to choose favorites here, but well, maybe I am a little bit, any innovation in, in your space that you've been particularly excited about lately, or maybe that just really blew your mind when you heard it? I mean, fermentation came kind of out of nowhere, and it's even more efficient than plant-based meat. So yeah, I mean, it's growing It's growing meat from essentially fungi. It's, it's what the company Corn has been doing for quite a while. And there are now a bunch of startups looking at this way of producing meat. The taste and texture is already, well, the texture is already really good. And then the flavoring companies are making the taste better and better. And it remains to be seen where it goes. But there are multiple companies that are doing this. And it seems extremely exciting. Like the water use is even less than plant-based meat. The energy use is even less. Basically, they're growing, you know, fungi-based meat. Yeah, you can grow a a tremendous amount of it with with a really, a fairly low resource use. And the early prototypes are really quite delicious. So it's a company called Sustainable Bioproducts that is doing this. It's one of the more exciting companies. They're funded by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a climate-focused venture capital fund founded by Bill Gates. They've got investment from ADM, which is obviously one of the biggest food companies in the world. And there are a couple of other companies that are up and coming in this space. And, you know, unproven so far, although corn was up until Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods just this year, the biggest alternative protein meat company in the world. So that, that certainly shows some degree of viability. But very, very excited to see where these companies go. Interesting. What about, do you, do you see the rise of, of, of plant-based meats and, and cell cultured meats being exciting in terms of helping with impoverished areas or food insecure areas? And if so, kind of how and, and when might we see that story play out? Yeah, I mean, so people like Bill Gates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as Eric Schmidt and the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Foundation, like the reason that they are so enthusiastic about plant-based and cultivated meat is because they see uh, these alternative protein technologies as the solution to global hunger and malnutrition. So Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, former chair of the board of Alphabet, was talking, I guess, three years ago now at the Milken Global Summit, and he was asked to talk about technological innovations that he thinks will improve life for humanity by a factor of at least tenfold in the fairly near future. And he talked about plant-based and cultivated meat, and he talked about it 
Again, not so that you know you and I will have a, a better veggie burger, not even so that domestic farmers will have a, a more sustainable way of creating protein. He talked about it because according to the United Nations, somewhere on the order of, of 900 million people globally are malnourished. And he sees this as a more efficient way of bringing high quality protein to the global poor. And then he also sees it as a significant portion of solving the climate crisis. Similarly, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation earlier this year, 2019, alongside the Institute for the Future, released a report that's pretty easily Googleable, I believe, called Good Food is Good Business. And they were they looked at five technological innovations that they think will be a very big part of solving the global health crisis, a big part of which is, is malnutrition and, and starvation. And one of the five things that they see as a big part of the solution to global poverty and global malnutrition is this significantly more efficient way of, of producing protein. And they're looking at both the plant-based and the, the cellular agriculture, the, the cultivated meat. So this is a big part of answering the, the two biggest questions in global agriculture. How do we feed close to 10 billion people by 2050? And what do we do about climate change? And they're also the solution to the, the looming end of working antibiotics, which scientists are saying will represent the end of modern medicine. So there are these sort of three colossal issues that we have in the way that the vast majority of meat is produced today. And it goes, uh, the, these two alternative methods of, of producing meat go a long, long way towards solving those problems. Bruce, I really appreciate your time here today and answering a lot of these questions that have been kind of lingering in my mind. Before we let you go, maybe, you know, help. I, I'm probably going to get some some flack for this uh, for this interview, <laughs> from, you know, from people who say, well, why'd you bring someone on who wants to end animal agriculture? That's my livelihood and that sort of thing. So maybe as we end, if, if you could just leave some parting comments on on the importance of kind of what you're doing and how you see, you know, uh, if Good Food Institute is successful in the, in the next decade, how does the world look? Well, um, I mean, I, we, are, we are not explicitly focused on ending animal agriculture. We are focused on producing plant-based and cellular agriculture products such that they can compete with lowest common denominator animal agriculture. So, I mean, our, our, challenge, is to be, our challenge to people in animal agriculture is to continue to satisfy consumer demand. And our, our hope is that consumer demand, as it applies to the products of industrial of, of animal agriculture, will prioritize environmental sustainability more, that it will prioritize animal welfare more, and that the sort of lowest common denominator animal agriculture will be replaced by plant-based products and the products of cellular agriculture. And that just needs to happen. I mean, if you look at the scientific consensus on the use of antibiotics in farm animals. And this is a global issue. So like, even if all of your listeners are doing absolutely right on this issue, like Google Pig Zero, which was a front page piece in the, in the New York Times about the use of antibiotics in farm animals in China. And obviously, antibiotics don't know national boundaries. Like, this is a problem that is a global issue. Climate change is a global issue. Water contamination and food security are global issues. And they really only get solved if we all work on these things together. Producing meat more effectively from plants and growing it directly from cells, I think, is, is a big part of the solution. But I also think a part of the solution is, is producing for people who want to continue to eat meat from animals improving the environmental sustainability, moving toward regenerative farming practices, improving animal welfare. 
I think that continues to be a part of the equation and, and probably a significantly bigger part of the equation than it is now. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. People want to learn more about the Good Food Institute. Where should we send them? GFI.org. And for an introduction to the issues we've been talking about, uh, GFI.org slash essentials will get you to lots and lots of papers and documentation. And in fact, at GFI.org slash essentials, if you scroll down, you can you can find there's uh, an environmental fact sheet that basically distills the life cycle analyses that were done by Morningstar and Impossible and beyond. So you can get the sources to, to those, but also see in, in brief what they say. Thanks again to Bruce for sharing that perspective. I enjoyed that conversation. What are your thoughts on the future of plant-based and cell-grown meats? Find me on social media and let me know. I would love to hear from you there. I want to say thank you to those of you who filled out the audience survey. I'm in the process of compiling all of that data, but I can already tell you from looking at them, there are some insights that will be implemented very soon to improve this show. So thank you for taking the time for those thoughtful responses. In the meantime, I would love a rating and review from you on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this program. Thanks so much, though, for your time and your attention. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.